This month's Where Did the Road Go is brought to you by three amazing people. Super Inframan, Allison Cook, and 36 Dingo. If you want to become a patron or a sponsor, go to wheredidtheroadgo.com. And now our show. Transmission start. Welcome to Where Did the Road Go? Join us as we wander off the path and explore lost history, consciousness, the paranormal, unexplained mysteries, alternative thought, and much more. We are present on the web at wheredidtheroadgo.com. Now here is your host, Soraya. Welcome to this edition of Where Did the Road Go? And tonight I have with me a super inframan. Good evening. Sometimes known as Saxon. Sometimes known as Saxon. <laughs> and Ren. Hey, everyone. It's been a while, Ren. Mm-hmm. So not, not as long as it was the previous time, but it's been a while. So it's nice to have <laughs> you back. Yeah. Um, we're mostly going to do some AMA stuff today. I had uh, thrown out just yesterday. I put up a thing for AMA questions. I got a bunch of them. Um, but I wanted to address a couple other things first. The first one, uh, much to my surprise, people seem very uh, divided about Graham Hancock. And uh, Graham's someone I've admired for a long time, so I, I, I missed that there were any issues with Graham Hancock. And one of the, th- the things that keeps getting brought up, um, and, and uh, Chris wanted to bring this up in, in when we did the show on it, and a lot of people were attacking him for bringing it up, but we had talked about it prior, and because it keeps coming up, we it seemed like something that should be brought up, which is like this this whole racism thing that if you're if you're postulating an ancient civilization existed, it's somehow become racist. And I could see that, you know, like with the Nazis, sure. I could see that even with ancient aliens saying, well, well, you know, older cultures were too stupid to do this stuff, so aliens had to help them. But following the evidence and saying there may have been a decently advanced civilization that got wiped out is not racist. Uh, and it goes back, uh, I think, Super Inframan, or no, Ren, you were saying before the show that this is something that, you know, all these tales around the world talk of this very thing, these civilizers. Yeah, like wisdom kings from the East. I mean, that's like a common narrative amongst a lot of ancient civilizations i mean particularly the sumerians right right and uh so i, I grabbed a copy of because i was trying to remember the details I, I grabbed my copy of underworld from graham and he's talking about the aryan invasion of india and it says the attribution of the vedas to aryan invaders at the date of 1200 bc for the codification of the vedas and the Aryan invasion theory itself can all be traced back to an idea that had already planted roots by the beginning of the 19th century. So what the, uh, let's see. Uh, okay, so here's the actual theory. This is not from Graham. This is what the what academia says. Um, so this had to do with the Aryan race proposed to be the people who spoke the languages of Indo-European family. European intellectual and moral superiority was a foregone conclusion to most savants of the 19th and early 20th century. The success of European colonialism, Christianity, and the Industrial Revolution proved that. This condition of innate superiority was seen in the classical Greeks and uh, to have been carried forward by Rome. With the discovery of the Indo-European family of languages, it was evidence for an even earlier history, one set within a prehistoric past that only archaeology could uncover. The Aryans, or Indo-Europeans, must have been blessed with this superiority since they too were successful conquerors of vast lands from the Bay of Bengal to the outer lands of Scandinavia and the United Kingdom. 
Uh, it was against this ideological background of inevitable European superiority combined with the misunderstood reference to Arias, A-R-Y-A-S, in the Rig Vedas, uh, that the doctrine of the Aryan invasion of India arose and gained universal acceptance among scientists as an event that had taken place at a specific moment in history and that had involved a mass movement movements of uh, people from a European homeland into India. So that's that's sort of the accepted view of this. Like, the Indian people couldn't have made the Rig Vedas, so these Aryans must have done it because the term is similar to, you know, they're using A-Y-A-S or whatever. is very similar to Aryan. Mm -hmm, and Graham, mm -hmm. of course, tears this apart and shows that this is not the case. And yet he's the one being saddled with these accusations of racism. And, you know, and it's like, this is the most racist thing here when you're looking at it. You know what I mean? Like they're saying literally that that the Indian people couldn't have written these documents. So it had to be like Europeans. Right, right. You know, and that mentality really uh, still remained in archaeology and anthropology, I think, until Franz Boas uh, showed up and sort of uh, reevaluated how we approach these things instead of having this sort of, you know, European hierarchy trying to go out and study the noble savage or something like that. Yeah. Uh, and, and that's been within the last hundred years, I think, that that's been addressed anyway meaningfully, and it still hasn't gotten everywhere, you know? Um, but, you know, I, I'm not even, I, I've said this offline, you know, Grant is not somebody that I, I love or not somebody I dislike either, but I don't feel that it's uh, implying any type of racism to say that, uh, you know, where I live suffered a disaster and somebody from down the road that I might have traded with or something like that along trade routes, we reached out to them. They came and helped us figure out how to rebuild because some of the people that did know how to, uh, you know, had our, our technological, and I'm saying technological very loosely because that can right. be lithic technology, you know, passed away. And so it makes sense that you went and found neighboring experts to help you uh, bring that knowledge back into your group of people. I mean, that's, I, I think one of the challenges with this is when people hear Graham say civilization, they're thinking of some grand European singular society. Right. But when I'm listening to him, I'm hearing civilization as places all over the world made up of peoples all over the world. And so, uh, you know, obviously trade routes are going to exist. You're going to have people next to you that, you know, down the road, uh, Bob may remember how to carve certain lithics. And then in my community, you know, Sarah may still understand how to make certain types of fired pottery that last longer. Yeah. Th these are not, or, or they understand like how uh, the stars move in the sky. Uh, I don't see that as being racist. I see that as mythologizing uh, reconstruction after a disaster. And, and, and that's the other thing. You see a lot of people attacking Graham saying that, oh, well, yeah, there were cars. We're all the cars. It's like he's not saying that. He's saying that, that's what he's saying. maritime civilization. That they, This was a seafaring civilization that had a, a decent uh, knowledge of astronomy and, and things like that. Mm -hmm. This is not that much of a stretch as far as I'm concerned. No, and I, I think as we get more into understanding, you know, we talk about climate change and water rising, we'll probably see more evidence of this. Um, you know, I, I said this offline with both of you. I think in 100 years, this will be a accepted high level theory, but you'll never hear Graham mention a connection to it. No. Uh, just like how the younger dryest being caused by a comet or meteors or, or whatever 
has already started to seep in. Like I, I hear that in academia circles fairly often with, yeah. you know, no, no wincing or anything. It's just like, oh yeah, that happened, you know? Yeah. And you're starting to see things about like dogger land. I, I saw somebody talking about dogger land the other day. Um, and people really don't understand that there were vast swaths of land uh, that existed uh, within human history that are now completely underwater yeah. um, because of, you know, the, the retreat of the glaciers and the end of the Ice Age. Right, right. And like, it's entirely possible that those locations that are now submerged and have been submerged for millennia um, had civilizations that lived there, right? Because that would have been coastline at the time. Right. And humans have always settled along the coast. And it's not difficult to imagine that a lot of the you know deluge myths or myths about flooding and things like that were a cultural memory of basically, you know, huge areas of land and kingdoms and stuff disappearing underwater like within the course of several decades you know it probably yes. wasn't overnight but it yeah, happened quickly right. enough that it was you know in, in geological terms basically overnight um and well, those people had to go somewhere they didn't just stay there and drown like they, right. they migrated well if and, if if yeah. you had the the ice dams bursting it would have been literally overnight <laughs> it could have, been, could have been but I, my my I, at least my conservative approach to it is that it was uh, a process that probably took maybe even hundreds of years um, but over that course of time, people migrated from these locations. And if you think about it, these coastal locations, especially like in Southeast Asia, um, mm -hmm. you know, South India, places like that, they would have had or probably had advanced civilizations, not advanced in the sense they had cars and laser guns, but like, you know, cities and pyramids, buildings, um, yeah. you know, maybe like magic and culture, uh, something yeah. more organized than than the typical nomadic hunter gatherers type lifestyle that a lot of humans lived for uh thousands and thousands of years and when those places were claimed by the waters the people there who had all of this knowledge about you know, building city walls and things migrated east and ended up in places like the middle east which were you know not really deserts at the time right. and they taught the people that lived there how to build city walls you know how to build temples they taught them about religion and things like that and running running water literally say yeah. that they say that that's what happened yes <laughs> they say these people came these you know sages came uh and taught us how to do these things you know the, the, i i don't see how that's controversial at all right right or racist or yeah racist. because i mean in, in at least in my theory i mean this is you know it's not not solely my theory i mean this is i picked it up from various sources but uh right. you know these were south southeast asians basically who came and taught these people these things not, yeah. not only that but you know data's data I mean, whoever did it, did it. It's not a matter of, uh, like, setting it to uh, propel one person over the, over the other. That, and, of course, that does happen. But in the end, the data is the data. Mm -hmm. The data is the data, and the stories are the stories, to yeah. this point, too. I mean, it's I, – I don't know. I, I sometimes wonder uh, if some of the apprehension to this idea that there was a, a cataclysm in recent history, you know, you know saying that in – quotes of course is that we don't want to think about that being something that happened so recently yes definitely because um, it could happen you know, again yeah exactly exactly like it's it's fine to think that the dinosaurs got wiped out 65 million years ago right. but to think about facing a deluge because of a comet or meteor that was twelve thousand years ago suddenly means like this is very regular in a lot of ways and we don't have a lot to, that we can do about it and and despite how advanced we are we have left ourselves very open to things like solar flares. 
Yes. You know, we're starting to pay attention to asteroids and meteorites and stuff, but solar flares, we are still not protected from. And we get hit with a strong one. We're back to the Stone Age. We're real overdue for another Carrington event. And boy, when that happens, like it was bad enough when all the all the electronics people had were were telegraph lines. It's going to be real bad uh, when it happens again, given our modern technology. If it happens in a big enough area, it's going to destroy our civilization. Yeah. yeah. Or at least our ability. It's going to destroy all of our uh, electronics that run our current very comfortable lifestyles. Yes, which is everything. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> um, so the other thing I wanted to touch on real quick, just because I, I was watching it before we did the show, I, I rather enjoy, despite the reality aspect uh, show of it, uh, The Curse of Oak Island, because Oak Island always fascinated me. And uh, I mean, mm-hmm. I, I hate the structure of the show because it's so repetitive and so you know dragged out. But there's a few things that puzzle me here about this. Um, So in the 10 years they've been digging there, they've found some really interesting things. Uh, Stuff that could potentially rewrite history of North, the history of early North America. Um, It looks like this was a a very uh, busy island that was something was happening on, and it could be as early as like the 1400s. So that's, to me, that's fascinating. Like, if they find anything really, you know, uh, uh, like uh, any anything that, that, that is valuable in the sense of historic value, that's what I'm interested in. Now, I understand they want to find a treasure because they've spent millions of dollars looking for it. My first question is, if they do find the treasure, are they even going to be able to keep any of it? Um, mm-hmm. my second question is why do the people watching care about the treasure? Like they're not getting any of it. <laughs> like people are always like, well, they didn't find the treasure. And I'm like, who cares about the treasure? Look at all the interesting stuff they're finding. <laughs> people like to live vicariously. I think through other that, people's that, adventures. That, yeah, yeah, for yeah. sure. Cause you know, the Oak Island was one of those things I probably first saw in one of those, uh, gosh, like grade school library books of like yes. mysteries, you know? Yep. Uh, so the idea of them digging that up and always hearing about how it couldn't be dug up because of the planks that were put at different levels and all of that. I mean, it, it's so cool on some level, right? Yes. Yeah. Uh, so the idea that you could follow a obviously they're not following a map here, but like follow a map to the X and dig it up and there's treasure there. Like, that's very satisfying in a way. So, you know, I, I hope they find something. But, you know, it's to your point, you don't want to disregard all of the other cool stuff that you find in the process. Well, and the other thing that always strikes me, and I don't see anyone on the show ever mention it, is why would they put an X where the treasure is? If you're going right? to hide something on this island, you hide it on the other side of the island, and then you put an X on the far side. <laughs> yes, <laughs> and now that they're, they're looking at the other parts of the island and finding all kinds of stuff and i'm like this is probably where you should have been looking to begin with right right because even if there is treasure where this treasure shaft is it might be minor stuff compared to what they're trying to hide oh that's a good point you know that's hide extraction yeah, yeah hide something really valuable and then hide some some gold and some stuff that you know people will be interested in put an x on it that way if they they spend their time digging it they're not going to look for the other stuff but they found buried roads on this place. They, they're finding all kinds of wharfs off the coast that have now, are now underwater and stuff. I mean, it's really fascinating stuff. Huh. I just wish it wasn't in the reality show format. Oh, my God. 
But anyway, yeah, that, the only reason I haven't kept up with it is I get a little sick of the reality show aspect. Uh, it's just so dumbed down, you know. Um, but yeah, I mean, the stuff they found is interesting, and I could care. Like I said, I I hope they find treasure for their sake because they've put so much money into it. Mm-hmm. Um, someone had uh, this year asked the Nova Scotia authorities or whatever they're like, if if someone were to find treasure, would they have to report it? And they said yes. And they're like, did anyone report it this year? And they said no. And the guy's like, well, no point watching the show. They didn't find the treasure yet. Uh-huh. And I'm kind of like that, but that's not why I'm watching the show. A, B, this is a big TV company, you know, like they could very well have just asked Nova Scotia if they could wait on filing it until the, the show airs. Right, right. So I saw a story the other day about like uh, a group of folks that had found uh, uh, like Roman coins and they turned it into the museum or or whoever the authorities were. Listeners can look this up. And then they got robbed out of the museum the next day (laughs) 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 or or wherever it was stored. And so it was sort of like, oh, these people did the right thing and reported it. And then somebody stole it (laughs) or maybe they stole it back. That sounds about right. Yeah. All right. Let's uh, let's hit some AMA questions. Uh, I'm going to go to Discord here. Uh, oh, yeah. The first response from, from Eddie, G91. What product do you use in your hair? And you know what? I, I didn't know. I had to go look. And it turns out the answer is L'Oreal Elvive shampoo and conditioner. So, th- <laughs> so there you go. There's. It did say ask me anything, didn't I? <laughs> um. Okay. So from Pan the Goat. This was more of a shower thought, but if you want to ask uh, about this provocation, here it goes. What if every time someone invokes or conjures an entity, the veil of reality and everything else becomes a bit thinner inadvertently? Hmm. I certainly think it does. Um, but I also wonder, you know, this would be something I, I, I'm talking first because Ren's going to have a better answer for this than me. <laughs> uh, but I, I would also think that, you know, uh, places where reality has been rendered thin can be repaired over time. Um, you know, I have this pet theory about uh, White Sands where they were testing the what was the Trinity test sites there. Um, they turned it to a national park just below the Trinity test site. And there's always people out there having fun and having barbecues and hanging out and sledding down the, uh, the sand slopes, believe it or not. And uh, part of me has always kind of wondered, I'm like, is that to kind of fix whatever was done to reality when they uh, set off this bomb here? Oh, right, right. Rand, what do you think? Okay, so... The way I perceive, uh, let's say, like conjuration of spirits and stuff, um, it's as if, <clears throat> like, it's as difficult for spirits to be here as it is for us to be underwater, mm. right? So, in a way, the way I conceive of it, at least, is that if you imagine our world as as kind of an ocean, and the spirit world is on top of that, there's some places where the water is deeper, uh, and there's some places where the water is more shallow. Um, and I mean, grimoires talk about places that are more conducive to conjuration, uh, usually wastelands, forests far away from people, crossroads, abandoned buildings, uh, caves, you know, lonely lakeshores, that kind of thing. Yeah. Um, because in, in a sense, like reality is more shallow there and it's easier mm-hmm. for things to uh, dive down and stay longer. Um, and I think that when you do magic, um, you're creating temporarily, you're, let's say you're draining the water temporarily in the area that you're in and making it easier for those things to dive down and spend a little time with you. 
Um, but usually when you're done, you know, the water rushes back in. Right. Places don't stay drained, right? Because there, there's a certain, I guess, equilibrium there. Uh, and maybe over time, um, you can kind of haunt a place and make it weirder by doing things repeatedly there. Um, but I also don't get the impression that every time somebody does uh, a conjuration, we're uh, inching closer towards some critical mass where reality completely breaks down. Okay. That was actually a really good answer. <laughs> uh, I, That's why I went first. Because, <laughs> yeah, I th- I, you're right. I mean, there are some areas that are, that are more sensitive to this stuff autom- just on their own for whatever reason and areas that are not. And that, that analogy of us being underwater, I think, is very... Uh, dead on because it seems like whatever these things are, they're they're moving from a more ethereal sort of plane. Mm -hmm. But that it exists right on top of ours. Yeah. That it's not necessarily separate from us at all. Yeah. Uh, You know, it's kind of all around us all the time. um, But, you know, it's, it's sort of like the ocean, the, you know, the ocean's always there, but it's very difficult to go to the bottom of the ocean, uh, you know, and in the, in the deepest portions of it. And in some places, um, you know, it's, it's hard for the spirits to, to get here just because uh, in some places it's easier. And, and mm-hmm. the, uh, and the thing is like, do fish realize there's something other than the ocean? Yeah. Yeah. You know, every once in a while one gets pulled up. I mean, that's the old joke, you know, <laughs> oh, sure. You were abducted. <laughs> <laughs> exactly. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, I, I think about that a lot about how we perceive reality and uh, just the other, um, it was like a couple of weeks ago, uh, I found a like a paper wasp in my garage and we're well into winter here uh, in Minnesota. Um, so I had no idea where this wasp had even come from. Um, I figured they'd already died off by then. Um, so it seemed really weak. So I went and got like a little cap of uh, uh, like some some simple syrup to kind of give it something to eat. And uh, like, you know, helped it uh, like picked it up with my hand and helped it into the cap. And, you know, it drank from it. And then it like went off and I, I hope just found a, uh, you know, warm place to hide because I, I think it may have been like a queen that is mm. waiting for spring to, uh, you know, build a new nest. And, you know, I think about that. It's like this effectively godlike entity just appeared out of nowhere <laughs> and like, <laughs> you know, reached down and like gave you something to eat and then put you someplace warm and then just like disappeared, you know, and, uh, to, to those creatures that that's how we must appear. And so is it that strange to think that there are things that appear to us in a similar way? Yeah, no, definitely. I think you're dead on on that. Yeah, absolutely. And, and also our, all of our perceptions of reality, I mean, individually, they're all different, but from species to species, they're, they're, we have no idea how different they may be. Like we can't experience, yeah. you know, the world through a cat's eyes or a dog's eyes, much less something like a wasp. Yeah. But what, you know, the, what I do enjoy about that though, is like, you know, I watch my dog like dream, mm-hmm. you know, I watch her like legs move and, you know, make these like little half wolves and stuff while she's sleeping and I know she must be dreaming about running. And so it, it does, there is like a certain commonality of experience that we, we have, even with other species where we can look at them and think, yeah, I have dreams where I'm running. You know, yeah. we, we, sometimes we, sh- we share these dreams, even with uh, animals that we have no real way to like communicate with. True. true. Ah, interesting. Yeah, absolutely. Well, I mean, especially animals that we have as pets, I think, have more in common with us. And, you know, and w- whether they would if they were in the wild, maybe not. But, like, yeah. I mean, obviously, everything dreams as far as we know. Mm-hmm. And, uh, you know, they, the animals, you know, adapt. They mimic us. Mm-hmm. Um, it was What was the thing about dreams? I took, oh, yeah, this was someone th- that someone threw in the shower thoughts uh, group somewhere. 
and they and I, I never thought about it this way, but it, it's totally true. Uh, they said you forget about your dreams when you enter reality, but you also forget about reality when you enter your dreams. <laughs> oh, nice! <laughs> I'm yep. just like oh, I gotta save that one. That's a oh, good observation. Yeah, and, and that should make people think. I mean, the way I live my life, I don't find any useful distinction between dreams and reality. Um, when I dream, it's just another reality that I live half my life in. Yeah. Mm-hmm. And things that happen to me in dreams are just as impactful and important to me as things that happen to me in my waking life. And I, I just I don't understand how other people don't live their life like that or don't consider their dreams like an important part because most people sleep half their lives. So, you know, this is like a whole half of your existence that if you're not uh, exploring and interacting with, you're just missing out, you know? Yes. Oh, absolutely. Well, you know, and it's, it's interesting when you think about uh, when you have dreams where you're someone else Mm -hmm. and you feel like you've always been that other person or, or whatever it is you're dreaming of yourself as. Mm-hmm. And uh, I always find it interesting to recount those the next morning where it's like, oh, last night uh, I dreamed that I was an old lady named, uh, you know, Roberta and <laughs> lived on a farm. And mm-hmm. I'm like, and it never during the dream crossed your mind that this was odd because, you know, it's got no point of reference to your waking life. Right. Yeah. Um, yeah. I remember the first time I had those kind of dreams when I was probably like eight or nine and being totally confused by them, too, because uh, like, wow, I can actually have this experience of being a completely other person, you know, at least for a short time. Yeah. I remember the first time I ever had a, a real um, very, very rare occurrence of extreme time dilation in a dream where I was I think I was in high school. And for me, that was like we didn't have a middle school. So it was like six to twelve. Uh-huh. That was sixth or seventh grade. And I had a dream. And in the dream, I was like a nomadic person in the desert, you know, in like a yurt, with camels and stuff like traveling through the desert. And I stayed as that person and in that life for like, I don't know, like three to five weeks or oh, so. Wow. It was like a significant amount of time. Uh-huh. And like in that time, I went to sleep, you know, like I, <laughs> it was like bizarre. And I remember when I woke up, I was just like, what was that? Like, I just spent like a, you know, like almost a month in this other life. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. You know? And then that really fascinates me because I'm like, if, if you could figure out what is going on there, like uh, the possibilities there are, are really crazy. Like you could, um, you could read every book. You know, like if you could slow down time and go into a dream and be in that dream for 10 years and just do research or whatever <laughs> and, and come back. I mean, I know like it's funny enough. Uh, I actually heard this on on the Joe Rogan show, speaking of Graham Hancock. Um, but him talking, uh, it was a couple of years ago. He was talking about how a lot of MMA fighters will train in their dreams. Oh, yeah. Right. And then interesting. there's like an actual effect, like an, uh, a measurable effect in their ability to like learn and stuff. And that you can learn things. You can learn skills in your dreams. You could practice things in your dreams. You know, that, mm-hmm. that's wild to me. I love that kind of stuff. There, there was a podcast I rec- listened to recently, and I want to do a whole show on this. this I have a couple things, but they were talking about. Uh, the REM sleep being the point where your creative stuff comes from. And this was like mm-hmm. established science. This wasn't anything fringe. This was just them explaining REM sleep. And I'm like, really? Well, that's nice to hear since, I mean, I've known that forever, but it seems like the establishment has always discounted that stuff. Mm-hmm. Yeah. People are always told, you know, oh, your your dreams aren't important or, uh, you know, there's that whole uh, meme that, you know, your your dreams are the most boring things to other people. You, right. know, you should never tell other people your dreams or whatever. And, and I think that's all nonsense. Like, 
your dreams are important. You know, if you can, you should keep a dream journal and you should tell other people about your dreams. Yeah. You just, know? Not, sure. just, just, love- just not Joshua Cutchin. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> but yeah, I totally agree with that. Um, all right. Let's see. Next uh, question. This one's from Arthur Parvati. I think it's Parvati. He says, in January, you have been doing Where Did the Road Go for 10 years. Congratulations. And thank you. And that is totally true. January 26th will be 10 years since I started this show. In that time, what, if anything, has changed in the field you cover? And what, if anything, has changed about your thinking on these subjects? Um, So I don't know that a lot has changed as far as the fields uh, because it takes so long for anything to change at all. I mean, we were talking about the the comet hypothesis earlier. I think that's been a little more accepted and stuff. Uh, as far as psi goes, I mean, there have been great psi studies, like like Doctor Bem's uh, study in Cornell. That, ha- but it hasn't really changed the field because mainstream right. science isn't going to accept it, no matter how well it's done. To the point where they're even questioning if the scientific method is correct anymore, because Doctor Bem proved that psi was a thing. So, you know, that they're, they're literally on this backwards tw- trend of we know this isn't real, so what's wrong with the method? Instead mm-hmm. of, oh, we were wrong. Um, I don't see anything really having changed massively in the UFO field. Um, you know, you're hearing a little bit more about different ideas that aren't extraterrestrial, but the ET stuff still sort of dominates. I don't feel like the, the whole uh, the whole group there that disappeared, uh, the, the punk rock star guy. Uh, oh, Tom DeLonge and, yeah. Stars, yeah. To, the, to stars. the stars. Yeah, I don't think that really did anything. It just kind of regurgitated some stuff. Uh, we've seen guys like Bob Lazar pop back up. I mean, it's, not, it's nothing new is the problem. Um, and I don't think the government's ever going to tell us anything truly useful about the phenomena, even if they do know. So I, I feel like it's just in this endless cycle, which is why I always liked Greg Bishop's thing where you have to ask better questions because we just keep getting the same answers. We've been getting them forever. Um, so I do think it, it's some people have spanned out a little bit beyond their comfort zone on some of it, but nowhere near as much as they need to if we're going to understand this stuff at all. Uh, and the same mm-hmm. with like Bigfoot and stuff. You're hearing now more about like interdimensional Bigfoot, but I feel like that's just like we don't even know what that means. Yeah. So it's it's yeah. kind of like oh interdimensional, but we don't know there are other dimensions. That that's you know it's like saying extraterrestrial and then changing it to interdimensional. It's like it's the same thing. We don't understand what that is. At least we understand extraterrestrials from another planet. We just don't know how they get here. And then it's like oh they're ultra dimensional. It's like okay. <laughs> <laughs> Yeah, it's like you don't have any answers for that either. It's just your idea. Yeah, and I'm not saying that they're not. Maybe these things are interdimensional, but it doesn't answer anything because there's no evidence one way or the other whether or not there are other dimensions and whether or not things could move through them. Yeah, I mean, I've come, at least in my own beliefs in this stuff, I've I've really changed a lot. I remember when I first uh, did a show with, or when I first contacted Josh Cutchin, um, this would have been like, Jesus, 2014 or so. Um, I was really into like, almost like a very materialistic view of like UFOs and stuff where I was like, okay, they're probably uh, like earth lights or electromagnetic disturbances that are basically like frying people's brains or like causing them to hallucinate when they come into contact with them. Right. 
Uh, and that has, you know, then I come into contact with like Josh and Greg Bishop and stuff. And I start thinking about, oh, well, you know, co-creation and all this kind of stuff. And then I read The Secrets After the Ufonauts and I'm like, OK, well, if I want to uh, if I want to learn more about UFOs, I have to learn more about magic. And <laughs> I start studying magic seriously. And uh, then for a while, I go on this whole kick about um uh, that maybe it is literally like aliens, literally, <clears throat> or not literally aliens, but like literally stuff from space because there are all of these like ruins all over the solar system. And maybe we're dealing with the, the remnants of a uh, extinct solar civilization, maybe like the automatons they left behind or something. Mm. Um, but ultimately, like, I don't think I've ever really held strongly onto any one theory for more than a, a, a year or two. And I think that's healthy. Yeah, yeah. it's more fun. It's more fun. And, <laughs> You know, it, it goes back to what Soraya was saying. And if I would say if anything has changed, and it hasn't changed widely, but it's the willingness to have groups of folks uh, like her on the show to just admit that they don't know. Yeah. Yeah. And, you know, and, and say, like, well, what does interdimensional mean? What does extraterrestrial mean? What does, you know, hyperterrestrial mean? Like, these are these are all ideas. And, uh, you know, at the end of the day, it's saying we don't know something is happening and it bears looking into. Yeah. Um, and, and I think fundamentally that's the best approach to have because you can try ideas on and if they work for you, they do. And if they don't, they don't. Yeah. yeah, yeah. As, as for, go ahead. Or go ahead. Sorry. No, go ahead. I was just going to say like, uh, on the other hand too, though, I, I would say if, if there's one thing I've seen shift in the field, if we're talking about maybe ufology in particular over the last, you know, probably five years, um, is in addition to like the whole increased, um, you know, to the stars psyop kind of stuff going on um, in the government and in the mainstream media. You've also had people like Jack Brewer and if I hope I'm pronouncing this guy's name right, Robert Scabarla, mm -hmm. um, who have written a lot of good stuff about the deep connections between, uh, you know, ufology post 1940s and intelligence. Yeah. And um, man, what a disenchanting rabbit hole to get into because <laughs> i mean I, I remember when i was reading about alan dulles being interested in ufos and flying saucers uh not because he thought they were real but because he he saw an opportunity for a fascinating way to manipulate cultures via mythology yes and yeah. it started you know at least in some way maybe think wow was literally any of this real? Were there any actual real UFO encounters or sightings post, you know, I don't know, 47 or so? Or yeah. was it all literally a psyop from the very beginning? Was Adamski, because I remember I even saw a theory that like Adamski was like drugged and like taken out to the desert and shown a set, you know, <laughs> like. Wouldn't, uh, wouldn't you know, surprise me. Yeah. yeah, exactly. And it's, maybe that's true because you, you look at stuff like the Betty and Barney Hill case, and I'm sorry, but the Hill case is, you cannot convince me otherwise at this point that that wasn't in my lab and that wasn't them being experimented on, uh, possibly with like mind altering drugs and stuff because there's so much of it. And every single person connected with that case is a spook. Yeah. It's like everybody's either intelligence or former army psychological warfare or something. It's 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 the most blatant example of it, I think you can find. And it, it really I don't know. I kind of had to stop reading a lot of that stuff because I was like, man, this is such a bummer. Like, <laughs> it doesn't fun at all. And yeah. You know, it, you really uh, won me over with that uh, analysis of Betty and Barney Hill, too. And it's changed how I look at a lot of uh, different um, contactees experiences. 
Mm-hmm. Uh, you know, and, and Dulles was a CIA director, gosh, for how many years? A long a time. A, a long time, for, yeah. Yeah, yeah. And it, it, it can kill the mysticism sometimes because one of the things I love about all of this is is not knowing. And, uh, you know, when you take the uh, the magic of and I'm saying magic, not in the magical sense, but magic in the sense of just out of the ordinary mm-hmm. and suddenly it turns into social manipulation in a different way. Yeah. It's like, oh, man, that sucks. Yeah. You know, well, like I, I don't want to live with that, like hanging over my head all the time. Well, yeah. and the remedy for it is the focus on stuff from the past, much like Jacques Vallée ended up yeah. doing, you know, looking at like Magonia type stuff, stuff from like the 1800s. I'm fairly certain that the CIA wasn't running a psyop in like 1847 or whatever. So, <laughs> exactly. You know, like that stuff I can look at and still have a real sense of wonder about it and not have to worry about whether or not it's all just delusions. Right, um, right. I, I, I think what happens with it is a hint sometimes. I mean, because there's the real blatantly obvious stuff like the Serpico stuff. Mm-hmm. But mm-hmm. like, mm-hmm. you know, when someone contacts you and says, oh, I had this experience and they're, they're kind of, you know, unsure whether they want to talk about it. That feels less like a psyop and more like, especially if it, it, it hits some, per, if it hits some personal stuff with them. That feels less psyopy and more like the the shamanistic type of stuff I would expect. Mm-hmm. Yeah, mm-hmm. but but even in that case, was their experience, you know, a legitimately paranormal experience, or were they being experimented on, right, or manipulated right. in some way? You know, yeah, you know, and with Betty and Barney Hill, one of the things that it crossed my mind was, you know, if I were in charge of trying to create different experiences for people, uh, you know, say I was at MK Ultra or something like that, I might try to target one group of people or one couple and say, I'm going to make them have an experience of an alien. But it might be that, you know, another of your targets for your experiment is I'm going to see if I can make them have a religious experience. Mm-hmm. And I'm going to make this person have the experience of, you know, uh, something bizarre happening in their house or something like that, you know, stuffed animals are trying to attack them. I don't know. I'm saying stuff arbitrarily, but the reason I point that out is there could have been a lot of things going on and we didn't hear about them because they weren't things that would be newsworthy. Mm-hmm. Uh, but they certainly could have been successes from a program point of view, like MK ultra mm-hmm. and been very detrimental to the people that, you know, were the targets of those experiments. So uh, the other part of the question was how my views have changed on this stuff. My views have changed, uh, not completely unlike you, Ren. They they change pretty constantly. Um, I think, yeah. When I when I first started doing this, I didn't know the depths of what hypnosis could do. So I had no problems with hypnosis, and I think it was uh, Paul Kimball did a show with me where he just tore apart the whole hypnosis thing, and I was like, really? You know. Then I had to go look it all up to make sure that he was right, and I was like, oh, he is right, huh? So. That has that completely altered my view of hypnosis after that conversation, um, mm-hmm. and, and of course, guys like Jeff Ritzman, you know, just strengthened that. And uh, uh, you know, as far as you know, I, I came up with that whole uh, wilderness poltergeist idea, which was because mm-hmm. I was reading Illuminations from uh, Willette, uh, who I had on. I can't remember, never remember his first name, where he was postulating that massive ufo sightings could be massive poltergeist events like like created by a a a group you know of people who are like a town or whatever that's under stress Mm -hmm. manifesting the same way a poltergeist would and then and then i'm reading some bigfoot encounter and it's like you know oh it's rocks are being thrown and vocalizations i'm like it's a freaking poltergeist in the woods Yeah. yeah and that took you know both josh and and tim down their path as well 
So, uh, you know, and Tim's the one that named it a wilderness, uh, not Tim, uh, Josh was the name that one that named it a wilderness poltergeist. Mm-hmm. But, uh, you know, and I've looked, I've been fascinated more now by the, the stuff that Keel talks about in the eighth tower. Mm-hmm. Um, and the idea that these things, as you were saying earlier, coexist with us, but are, uh, maybe in a different vibration of light entirely. So much of this mm-hmm. stuff has to do with light and so much of it has to do with, um, like the way it fades in and out and, and the look, listening to the snake brothers with, uh, Marty on one of the shows talking about the, uh, what was it? It was a military aircraft that, w- that you couldn't take pictures of because it was bathed in infrared. Hmm. And I went, right. what? The infrared can do that. And then I started doing some research. Uh, one of my patrons, uh, messaged me when I was talking about it because, he actually worked in the military with exactly this technology is making stuff like, so you can't take pictures of it. It could actually destroy cameras. And yeah. then I'm, I'm going, this sounds like what happens when people try to take pictures of UFOs and Bigfoot mm-hmm. and all this other stuff. It, it's blurry. It won't focus. Cameras won't work. It's like, it could be light. That's doing it. Yeah. I mean, I'm going to drop some, uh, some uh, survival knowledge on the way to the road go listeners. You won't, you won't hear this from anyone else, but if you um, are ever in a situation where you're uh, extremely worried about um, getting a Predator drone missile shot at you, um, make sure you throw away your iPhone uh, because the iPhone's uh, face recognition camera uses infrared. And on an infrared scope, you will light up like a Christmas tree. You're, you can see be seen from miles away. Really? Fascinating. So hopefully none of you will ever be in that uh, situation, but if you ever are, please turn off your iPhone. Just the iPhone, not just the smartphone? Um, I don't, any, any smartphone, I mean, probably any smartphone, honestly, but uh, iPhones in particular, the, the little face recognition thing that the newer ones have, um, it's always got a little infrared camera that's going all the time because that's how it can, like, uh, when you have it set up so, you know, as soon as you lift it up, it automatically turns on. That's because that little infrared camera is going on all the time and it's shooting out basically beams of infrared that uh, it uses to do face recognition. Huh. But on an infrared camera, it, it shows up like bright as day. It's like you're shining a flashlight. Wow. I had no idea. I, I was When I was doing research on it, I was fascinated how you would have uh, some of these these people in Taiwan hiding their faces by getting uh, baseball caps with infrared lights shining down on them. Yeah, yeah. If anybody's trying to use infrared cameras to to spot you, that is a way you can block it, though. You know, if you're not worried about being targeted, if you're worried about uh, facial recognition yeah. being well, able that, to that's catch it. you, yeah, yeah, you can scatter it with infrared because um, a lot of cameras, it's going to it's gonna screw them up. Um, and it makes me think about, uh, I can't remember the guy's name, like Keith, the Demon House guy. Oh, Keith Linder. Yeah, how he talked about how the, uh, the entities didn't like the camera. They didn't like yes. the infrared light. Yeah, that, know, was, uh, that was that was actually that was an EVP that Steve Mura captured at, in that house. Yeah, because they turned it. Makes it, you wonder if it doesn't like hurt them or yeah. it's like too bright. You know, it's like shining a flashlight in their face. Right, like, ah. exactly. <sighs> so if they're existing in that spectrum, mm-hmm. whatever they are. <laughs> so yeah, I mean, my views from from when I started this show to now. I mean, I've talked to so many interesting people. I've made a lot of new connections that I don't think other people had made previously, or if they had, like the wilderness poltergeist idea. Apparently, Lauren Coleman, uh, I think it was Red Pill, told me this, had mentioned this at some point. Like, oh, sometimes it behaves like a poltergeist. And then just continued and never did anything with that, you know. So he picked up that, yes, this was there. But because it didn't fit his paradigm, he just ignored it and moved on. (laughs) And it doesn't help that a lot of these stories, too, have, uh, let's say, the more uh, fantastic elements stripped out of them when they're 
uh, package for public consumption. Oh, I yeah. think like the Eight Canyon story is a great example of that, as Josh has talked about. Um, and I know when we uh, were doing Paramania uh, a few years ago, we went to the Bigfoot Museum in uh, Georgia. And the uh, operator of that, the guy who owned it, uh, told us that the majority of the reports that he gets involve some sort of paranormal element, right? Bigfoot's like floating through the air or has bright, shining eyes or disappears, you know. Right. He says more cases are like supernatural like that than cases that are more, you know, grounded or, or sort of like, oh, I saw like a big animal in the woods. And, uh, you know, he told us flat out that, you know, the big Bigfoot organizations, they throw out those reports. Yep. You know, they, they completely ignore them because they want to be accepted as like serious scientists and want to be respectable and everything. And you can't have all this this weird paranormal nonsense in these in your, you know, your big ape in the woods narrative. Yeah. Mm -hmm. I mean, one of the reasons I started this show is to be able to talk to people about mm -hmm. this stuff. And I think I've gotten way more out of that than I ever expected. Um, because I mean, people out there, there's some people out there who have great ideas and then you take that and you mix it with other ideas. And it's like, Hey, why has nobody put this together before? <laughs> yeah. I, I think a lot of the problem, I mean, what I think of when you, you told me that Lauren Coleman story is that a lot of people, especially people who like make their living out of this and the lecture circuits, writing books and stuff, um, they find a certain audience that wants to hear a specific kind of story. And yeah. so they can't just change the way they think about stuff all the time because they're having to sell their ideas and they're having to make their ideas marketable. And that, that's one reason I'm glad that I don't run my own podcast. I don't really, you know, I'm not reliant on the lecture circuit to make a living and any of this stuff. So I can just kind of like believe whatever I want to and I can put whatever ideas I want out there and I can be very flexible with the way I view this stuff. Because, you know, I don't have to worry about uh, Patreon. You know? <laughs> it's kind of nice. I mean, I, you know, I, I don't see how you do it, Soraya. It's like, you know, I'm, I'm glad that you don't care about that kind of stuff. Uh, but a lot of people do. And, you know, they, they yeah. won't go out on a limb and they won't say anything controversial because they're scared that they're going to lose subscribers. Uh, I mean, I, I have to be honest with stuff. I just, just how I am. Mm -hmm. um, and mm -hmm. I will listen to people that I don't agree with. I don't have a problem with that because I don't know. I could be completely mm. wrong about everything. I mean, it because we don't know. Yeah. You know, you, and, and that's the truth of it because we, we don't know. So yeah. how am I any more right than someone else? Now, yeah, you know, there was so tribal with their ideas on this stuff. And it's like, yeah. mm -hmm. over the last couple of years, I've just taken the stances. I'm going to believe whatever the most fun thing is to believe <laughs> because I'm not going to be able to like provide any evidence of this. And I doubt anyone else is going to find any evidence of this stuff either. <laughs> and in a way, I don't want them to even find evidence of the stuff or figure it out because that would be so boring. Right. <laughs> right, right. Can't have fun with it then. Like, yeah. Well, you know, like when, when I'm talking about the light stuff, I mean, I, I find evidence to support this, um, which is better than, say, the evidence that these things are extraterrestrial, which I feel is one of the weaker theories. Uh, and mm -hmm. comes more from expectation than evidence. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. You know, it's like we but see something flying in the sky. Well, clearly it came from outer space. And it's like, I can see how you could draw that conclusion. And maybe it did. But mm -hmm. like, there's, there's nothing that actually points to that. Yeah. And I mean, I've even been talking to um, one of my friends about this lately. Um, because they're kind of like fed up with the interdimensional hypothesis people and stuff and trying to say like, well, you know, sometimes it might literally be aliens. Like, you don't people, you, you don't have any evidence of other dimensions either. So it's right. like, you know, I think yeah. if you limit yourself to any one of these like ideas, then you're not really able to examine this. I mean, that that's what I respect so much about Greg about being like sort of flexible in the way yes. you view this stuff. And 
Um, but but I do like even people like Greg sometimes I worry that we come up with these like monolithic theories of everything when in reality it's probably like in like a you know an ecosystem of things yes. sometimes it probably is sometimes it might be spirits sometimes it might be angels sometimes it might be psyops being run by the CIA sometimes yeah. it might literally be an alien spaceship yep. from another world yeah you know you gotta exactly. stay flexible. all of the above. Yeah, yeah, and, and that's exactly, and and some of it may be stuff we've never even imagined. Yeah, yes. exactly. Yeah, some stuff may be stranger than anything that you could come up with. Um, I'm I'm I am happy that uh, Josh. I, I don't know. I don't think he actually got this idea directly from me. I'm trying to remember if we talked about it in our long car ride from Nashville to uh, to Anniston, Alabama. Um, but I in, in his latest books. Uh, he was talking about the idea that it could literally be aliens, but like aliens, for want of a better term, astrally projecting. Right. 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 Like alien having an out of body experience and coming here uh, to explore. And that's a drum I've been banging on for years because uh, <laughs> of all of my out of body experiences and uh -huh. realizing that like in that state, I'm not limited by like physical laws and things like speed of light don't matter. And I was like, why would anyone build a physical spaceship to travel the cosmos and super slowly when you could just project wherever you want to go instantly? And, you know, it stands to reason that if there is life on other planets, which there probably is, um, they might also dream and they might also be able to travel out of their bodies, too. And why not, you know, come to the another planet where there are other people who can do that? You know, it's it's. It seems like a natural way to explore the universe um, that makes more sense to me just based on my own personal experience than literal physical spaceships. I so it was fun to see Josh running with that. I believe in the Seth material. Mm -hmm. Seth says the first contact we will have with life from another planet will be uh, via telekinesis. Yeah. And, 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 I, and it's one I, of the few predictions he made, and I think he said it would happen in like 2003 or something like that, and it would be someone in mm -hmm. Australia, and they wouldn't know that they were actually communicating with someone on another planet. <laughs> yeah. I mean, it's been a pet project of mine over the past like couple of years to try to explore that more and see if I can like make contact with, uh, you know, not an alien or an angel or a spirit or whatever, but like um, some extraterrestrial sorcerer who's traveling here and like i want him to teach me you know the magic of his planet right you know see what spells he knows that i don't know <laughs> how's your like uh, a lot of how's that gone for you so far red I, I haven't met anyone that i could verify that that was what was going on i've certainly met a lot of things out there but um i don't know if any of them were an alien sorcerer mm. right right oh, fascinating I guess I guess the other thing I've looked at differently now is time, especially after that whole like like sort of mechanism idea I put out there that which comes from Dr. Bem's work that information does travel backwards. Um mm -hmm. which implies that you know things like banshees may not so much be like precursors of something as much as someone picking up that something bad is going to happen, that information, mm -hmm. that emotion gets projected backwards, and then they're mm -hmm. basically creating a poltergeist, which is the banshee, because they can't directly, consciously process that information. Yeah, that, that's definitely been an evolution in my views on Psy, that things like Psy and magic in a lot of cases are paracausal in nature. You know, it, mm -hmm. it's effects without causes and causes without effects. Or, or that they're simply traveling in a different direction. Yeah, exactly. It's, you know, uh, you have the effect happening in the present, but the cause is in the future. So, therefore, it's paracausal. And I think when I started this, I would have said that we live in a multidimensional sort of like, um, you know, every choice branches a new reality type of idea. And, and <laughs> the problem I always had with it is the number of realities you would have to have. Mm-hmm. 
You know, I mean, that's, that seems like just too many realities, but at the same time, if that's how the system works, that's how the system works. I mean, when we look out to space and see the number of galaxies out there, um, I don't think it seems as, as, uh, crazy of an idea. However, now I lean toward things maybe being a little more, uh, controlled, like set, not completely, like we still have free will, but that, you know, like it's within a certain paradigm. Yeah. I mean, I ran through that like a year or two ago or, you know, I was looking at all this paracausality and stuff and thinking, well, if I do a successful magical ritual to make something happen and it happens, does that mean that it was just going to happen anyway? And the entire reason I did the ritual is because I knew in the in the future that it was going to happen. Right. Like, did I actually change the course of events? <laughs> and what I basically came out of that thinking was like, A, I have no way of telling this. I have no way of like observing this happening out because I exist in 3D space that that follows the thermodynamic era of time. Right. Right. My perception is based on like the laws of thermodynamics. And so ultimately it doesn't matter. I I have to approach living as if free will and things like were real, even if they're not, because otherwise uh, I feel like you just fall into nihilism. Right. Right. Yeah, absolutely. Hmm. Okay. We got to take a quick break. We'll be right back. And in this break, um, I'm going to introduce something new. Uh, so people keep asking me for recommendations, particularly of podcasts, but other stuff as well. So every show at the mid show break, not only are you going to get the contact info, for the show, but also I'm going to make a recommendation of something I like. Uh, in this case, it's going to be a podcast. It's an audio fiction podcast called Red Valley. Now, this is a little sci-fi. Um, it's about cryogenics, and uh, it's also really funny. I thoroughly enjoy this. It's quick-witted. It's well done. They have two full seasons out, and uh, they're working on their final season it's not anything mind bending. It's just fun. It's really fun to listen to. And, uh, yeah. So red Valley is my recommendation for this week. If you're looking for something new to listen to and you like audio fiction, there you go. Red Valley. Check out where did the road go.com. You will find an archive of every show right back to the very first one that aired January 26, 2013. There's links to all of our social media, Discord, Facebook, the Facebook group, Twitter, YouTube. You can pick up merch at our store that is linked on the page. You can become a Patreon and get extra content every month for as little as $3 a month. You can leave a donation, go through blog entries, and you can contact us. If you have stories you'd like to share for a future listener stories episode, stories at wheredidtheroadgo.com is the place to send them. For general contact, it's contact at wheredidtheroadgo.com. And if you want to mail me something, you can do so at P.O. Box 444, Ovid, New York, 14521. You're listening to Where Did the Road Go? And we're kind of doing an AMA show tonight, although we've only hit like two questions so far. And I'm here <laughs> with Super Inframan and Ren Collier. Hey, everyone. Hello. And uh, so that was that was part one of Arthur's question. <laughs> Part one, okay. So part two is millions of people die every year, often in miserable situations. People have arguments and suffer from stress or depression on a similar widespread basis. If ghosts are dead people or manifestations of psi phenomena, why don't we see more examples of them? Mm. Let me just point to how rare they are, too. Yeah. Um, and that's one of the things I think would be why it's so difficult to study. 
Um, it just may be something that compared to the number of people that are uh, dying every day that have died throughout history. I mean, we there have been uh, dinosaurs on the planet before there were humans, too. And every once in a while, people think they've seen those. But I, I think that goes back to the idea of it just being such a rare phenomenon. It, it could be that, uh, yeah, I mean, it could be certain areas. Like Ren was talking about, certain areas are a little more shallow. And maybe yeah, those areas are the spots that record things better. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Or certain people push a lot of will into that, you know, that experience. They have a stronger connection to things, and that's what leaves a mark. Go ahead, Red. So, um, I guess my, like, back to what we were talking about previously, my ideas on this are flexible. Lately, I have been approaching it because I've been reading a lot of uh, Paracelsus. And so, um, in in Paracelsus' idea of ghosts, um, he explains them as uh, being ontologically a synopsis of the division of the human being. That they are not the souls of the dead, but merely the sidereal component of the dead left hovering briefly on Earth. Uh, He adds that uh, an astronomer, meaning a practitioner of the powers of stars, like a magician who uses the stars, can perceive and employ a ghost for various tasks. Such an artisan can see the sidereal bodies of the dead, but charlatans abound who falsely believe and teach that they can perceive and communicate with the souls of the dead. And this basically goes into his idea about like what the soul is, like how, you know, you have a, a, your existence is made up of, of a three elements, salt, sulfur and mercury. And that this makes up like the body, the soul and the spirit, but that like your spirit and your soul are like two separate things and Mm, they're not the same. And, you know, this is just a philosophical framework. It's just a way of looking at the universe. I have no way of proving that it's quote unquote real. But uh, that's at least how I'm approaching this. So to sort of answer his question, like the reason we don't we don't live in a a world that is completely saturated with ghosts is because they're not the souls of the dead. They're just sort of this shell that gets left behind briefly after someone's physical death. Why do you think some stick around? Because I I agree with you on that. Um, Why do you think some stick around longer than others? Because you got Hmm. like those castles where. You know, yeah. with a stone t- this tape theory kind of works where you see something just going through its its motions. <laughs> yeah. I mean, I think in those cases, it is almost like like stone tape. It's a, like a, a recording, a playback of something happening. Yeah. Although I think it's possible, too, though. I mean, maybe it's not really like panpsychism, but in that same sort of idea, it, it's possible that these shells could take on sort of their own existence, right? Like most of these shells just sort of fade away, right. you know, with time. But maybe some of these shells that are, you know, they did just by virtue of hanging around or uh, their will or whatever, they sort of develop their own identities. You know, almost like a clone of the person uh, who is now dead and moved on, you know? Yeah. Well, you know, what I find interesting, too, is when you have hauntings that turn out to not actually reflect anybody that was alive there. Yeah. Um, it, you know, and how does that fit in as well? Um, and I don't know if that's our assumptions about how a place should have been haunted, sort of <laughs> stacking on top of itself, yeah, or or what? The you tol- know, but that tulpa idea, yeah, yeah. yeah. But it, it does. I think in some ways that goes back to the or lend some um, weight to the stone tape idea because you're still you know writing that into the the tape essentially to play over and over. It's just your perception of what it was, not what something else had done. Yeah, and you're also assuming too that whatever is appearing is is necessarily had anything to do with anyone who lived at any point. I mean, you you have other spiritual entities, you know, elemental nature spirits and that sort of thing. 
that that might just be appearing based on something they saw and somebody or maybe one of these shells that was hanging around. They're like, oh, I'm going to wear that outfit mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Like manifest unto people who were here. Um, so, yeah, you, you, you know, there's like an ecosystem of these entities and they're not all human or have anything to do with humanity. Um, the, the new theories book where I'm trying to just put a collection of different ways to look at all these different phenomena. The only chapter I have even remotely done is the ghost chapter, and it's pretty much the size of a small book because there's so many different ways to look at ghost phenomena, and it's and it's almost certainly not all the same thing. Mm-hmm. So, like, as, as you look through it, it's just like, and I kept, and as I was writing it, I was coming up with more things. I'm like, wait, but it could also be this, and and maybe this, <laughs> and then I'm doing, I'm looking something up, and someone's like, oh, and T.C. Lethbridge said this, and I went, do I have his book where he says that? Because I'd like to see more about what T.C. Lethbridge said, and I, I don't think I have the book. <laughs> and for some yeah. reason, his stuff goes for a fortune. But uh, yeah, I mean, ghosts, uh, and maybe maybe they are there. Maybe this stuff is all there. Uh, we're just not sensitive enough to see it. Yeah, and, and taking it back to the time thing you mentioned, I mean, there's that story that's in uh, John Tenney's um, Realms of the Weird podcast where he talks about uh, this um, this woman who, like an older lady, who was having a haunting at her house that he investigated in which, uh, you know, handprints of little children were like showing up on the walls and she was like hearing these like children running around and and it was really strange uh, because no family had ever lived with kids had ever lived in that house before her. Right. Um, right. And she passes away. And a few years later, a family buys that house and they have like two small children. And it's like, you know, there weren't ghosts. Maybe was she just seeing what that place was going to be like in the future? Yeah. Leading back through, you know, I think there was another story, too, which was similar, where someone kept seeing this woman walk down the stairs Mm-hmm. And at some point met their neighbor who lived a few houses down and she used to live in that house. And they were like, wait, you're our ghost. <laughs> uh, let's see. So I think we have time for one more here, which will, yeah, from Illuminati. This one, this one's definitely a good one for you too. Is magic an art and must change to stay relevant like music and cinema, or is it a science? And what was relevant a hundred years ago is just as valid now. Yeah, I'm going to jump in first because, <laughs> again, Ren's going to have the better answer here. Uh, and I, I don't want us to end on a like, yeah, me too, Ren's right. Um, you know, I, for me, because I haven't done a lot of traditional magic, I got brought into this through chaos magic more than anything else. Uh, and, and looking at how art itself becomes a magical ritual, uh, I don't think that it has to evolve. But I think sometimes just by the the virtue of having these uh, methods of magic that have existed for centuries that have been tweaked and perfected and repeated over and over, they do become more powerful in a way. Um, but at the same time, when you find things that are extremely meaningful for you, you can sort of uh, uh, substitute that in place of some of the more formal uh, approaches to magic. Mm-hmm. I'm going to uh, dip into the well of analogy to explain this <laughs> in a way that, that hopefully makes sense to people. Uh, hopefully it's relatable, but think about like uh, cooking. Cooking is both a science. It definitely is a science. There's a lot of like chemical processes uh, that go into cooking um, that determine, you know, how a recipe turns out. Uh, but it's also an art, you know, there are chefs that make uh, food better than, you know, like say an amateur cook. And, 
you know, they can make, they can express themselves artistically in the dishes that they make. Um, and I, I think magic is similar to that. Like, mm-hmm. um, there are certain first principles that are always true and have always remained true and are reflected in a majority of traditions. Um, Similar to how, you know, eggs act as a binding agent in a lot of, uh, you know, baked goods. Uh, Can you substitute eggs or can you substitute something else for eggs in recipes? Yeah, you can. There are substitutes, um, but you need to know what you're doing in order to make those substitutions. Um, If you think think of like grimoires and stuff as cookbooks, you know, if you're a person who's just learning, you've never really cooked anything in your life. You're just trying to learn how to cook. Right. It probably behooves you to stick to the recipe, you know, because you aren't experienced enough to know what you can substitute, to know what you can change um, and still end up with something that is palatable that people can eat. Mm -hmm. Um, Similarly, in magic, you know, it it can be better to kind of like follow the first principles that have been laid out. And you can find, uh, you know, a, a method or a tradition or whatever that speaks to you and that that you vibe with and and do that because the more you study this stuff, the more you'll realize almost all of these different traditions, they all have the same first principles. They all have the same basic structure to ritual. You know, there's uh, there's a banishing and there's an invocation and then there's evocation and then there's a license to depart. Like they all sort of work basically the same way. They just have different, you know, different flavors to them. You mm-hmm. know, it's, you know, just like. How the principles of cooking are the same across all different types of cuisine. Each cuisine has its own unique flavor and you got to find the one that you like the taste of. Um, But, you know, so you have a science, but you also have an art. Okay. That is. That was awesome. Yeah. (laughs) (laughs) I knew that was a good question for you. I mean, (laughs) uh, yeah, (laughs) I don't really have anything to add to it. You pretty much said it. Huh. All right. Um, The uh, I mean, I also come at it from a chaos magic perspective. Uh, which wasn't really intentional. I didn't know chaos magic was a thing. The way I approached magic was, I don't like all this pomp and circumstance. Can I get rid of that and still get effects? Mm-hmm. Yeah. You don't have to use Julia Child's, you know, the art of French cooking to learn how to make a loaf of bread. Right. You can make a loaf of bread in a lot of different ways. Um, and ultimately too, I have a very pragmatic approach to magic. Like I'm not in magic as a, as a mystical philosophical kind of thing. I'm into magic because I'm trying to get results. Uh, I'm trying to make changes in the universe, you know, in conformity with my will. And if you're getting results from your magic, you know, if you're if you're doing a thing and you get results from it, like then you're doing something right. Like it doesn't matter what you're doing. If you're getting results, you're getting results. Right. So, you know, use that as your your pole star when you're when you're learning magic. But my only suggestion to people, you know, especially if they're a beginner is like, you know, pick something that's like established and, and something that has like uh, easy to follow recipe, you know, and just try to stick to the recipe as best you can. Um, and the more you learn, the more you'll be able to improvise and, and cut out the stuff like Soraya's talking about. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. All right. Um, hmm. We might be able to squeeze one more in here. This is connected to stuff we were just talking about. What do you make of the crypto terrestrial hypothesis? Not extra or ultra. There seems to be an uptick of mentions these days on it. Um, I mean, that was Mac Tony's idea, really. Mm-hmm. And uh, I, I mean, it's as good as any other idea that these things come from, you know, our own planet here with us, um, like a hidden civilization, if I'm not mistaken. Yeah, you know, I I love that book. It's it's not very long. And if anybody's interested in reading Mac Tony's book on crypto terrestrials, like check it out and. He, he's very good about saying, like, this is just an idea. This is not necessarily something I believe or don't believe. 
Um, and it, it's a really good quick read that uh, just asks you to look at things from another perspective. But, um, you know, it, it's always possible. I'm kind of curious about the idea of popping up because I think it's sort of uh, people trying to make sense of UAPs lately. And the way that's been presented uh, either through some of the leaked videos or some of the testimony that happened before Congress and some things like that. Um, I'm not sure if that's what is really going to play out here. I'm kind of curious about some of the announcements around uh, nuclear fusion that have come up lately. Um, and some of that also laying the groundwork because I'm like, that might actually be how they're powering these things. It may totally be something that's just ours. But um, crypto terrestrial getting pushed again as a uh, a little bit of a way to pull you in other directions when regarding that. But that's just my pet theory. So I, I think a lot about Mac Tony's. Um, I'll forever kind of regret not getting into this stuff a little earlier, at least like as an active participant in uh, you know podcasts and blogs and stuff. Um, because I, you know, I, I never got to talk to Mac while he was alive and I feel like we would have had a lot in common, a lot to talk about, you know, he seems like a really cool guy and I think we would have gotten along really well. Um, but the, the thing that I think I have understood after, you know, reading Crypto Terrestrials a few times and, you know, I read it many years ago, um, is that it, it's not so much like an idea that Mac ever meant for people to take like seriously. It's like a serious hypothesis of like what might be going on. It was always a thought experiment, but it was also Mac showing, trying to show people a way of approaching anomalous, like, yes, yes. right? Like sometimes it can be useful to step back and come up with a theory that is completely against a completely, uh, let's say against like common wisdom or existing theories, not because it's valid or because you have any evidence for it, but just that it gives you a different perspective on, on something. It's like a different way of looking at things. And I, I like, I've really tried to synthesize that and the way that I approach this stuff over the last several years and like always kind of like come up with my own pet theories about something uh, and, and like creating new ones and dropping them and sort of creating my my own stories, basically, um, as a way to like keep my brain flexible. Yeah. I, I think Mac was trying to tell people to keep their brains flexible more than anything. Right, right. Yeah. Throw out, throw the what ifs out there and play with them. Exactly. Yeah. Yeah. Be playful with it. And. And don't be afraid to to come up with an idea that is completely your own, you know, and and just work with it and play with it and, and imagine if it was real and examine it because it might enlighten you to other aspects that you haven't like considered before. Yeah. And mm -hmm. that's why I like good fiction when they speculate on this stuff. Like it doesn't have to be realistic. It just, you know, like you throw an idea out there and you go, huh, wait a minute, you know. Yeah. I mean, honestly, Soraya, like Archive 81, the, you know, the podcast, not the awful TV adaptation. I didn't think the um, TV was awful. It's so bad. <laughs> we'll have to talk about that later. It's so bad. James Wong can can get kick rocks for all I'm concerned. But uh, <laughs> the, the Archive 81 podcast really opened me up to a lot of new ideas and like the occult and how I approach the occult and ideas about magic and stuff. And that's, yeah. you know fiction uh you know it's completely fiction a lot of the stuff in it is you know not like any ritual that you'll find in any you know actual book of magic and it's interesting and like the way it approaches you know entities and interactions and it's it's like changed the way i think about um interactions with spirits and what spirits 
uh, interact with people for, you know, and the, the idea of how powerful stories and narratives are uh, just in, in shaping reality. Um, and so, yeah, yeah, I definitely agree with you there that like good speculative fiction can really change the way you think about this stuff. And if I'm not mistaken, those guys don't believe in anything paranormal. But yet, oh, yeah, they, they they wrote something that's perfect for that type of speculation. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I mean, anybody who is like a magician or interested in the occult, like season three of uh, oh, yeah. Archive 81, the podcast is so good. All right. Well, we're just about out of time. So, um, Ren, tell people where they can find you. Yeah, so uh, I have a website at, at uh, liminalroom.com. Uh, it has some of my contact info and other podcast appearances, so... Feel free to drop me a line. I also have a uh, just a personal Discord uh, with like-minded people on it, a lot of like practicing magicians and stuff. So if you want to jump on there and ask me questions about magic, I'm happy to talk to you. Um, and the uh, link to that is also on my blog. All right. And a super inframan. You know, I'm just hanging around uh, Instagram these days. Uh, and I'm around the Discord a little bit too for Where Did the Row Go? All right. Awesome. Thank you both. Thank you, Survival. I'd like to take a moment here to thank all of my Patreons because without you, this show would not be what it is. And I want to give a special shout out to those of you pledging $10 or more. Allison Cook, Super Inframan, 36 Dingo, Chuck Shutters, Leanne Cherry, CJ, Tim, Andrew Nichols, Matthew Sproul, Christine, a blue second gen MR2 drifting around a Japanese mountain, Patricia Gaiaquinta, Alex Whitcomb, American Rambler, Andrew Maines, Ann Witowski, Barbara Fisher, Beverly Williamson, Big Boy Lemina, Charles Davis, Charles in Florida, Land of the Crazy and Communicable, Christopher Ernst, Craig Cicernos, Bill Luminati, Craig Parmenter, Diane B., MTK, Eric Todd, Jay, James Lattimore, James Lindsay, Jim Pyre, John Bracken, Carla Mahoney, Kevin, Kevin Shrek, Cool Kitty, Kristen L., Laser Printer Jam, Lauren McLean, Linz Jackson K., Luke Osborne, MJ Armstrong, Jim and Sophie, Mark Brady, Matt in Delaware, Oli Andre Olar, Patricia W., Paul Jeffries, Philosopher of Mirrors, Ray Benedetto, Riker and Stark, Ron Dupre, Sam Sharon, Stacy Sherwood, Tactical Therapist, Taylor Bell, Thunderboy, Tyler Glimstead, Veroche K, Vincent Trewell, Walker, Will Gebhard, Will Powell, Ren Collier, Stephen D, Amber Hall, and Craig Sagastumi. I thank all of you for the incredible support. There is a Patreon segment following this. Uh, I'd also like to give a shout out to my new patrons this week. Elizabeth W. Stuart Lloyd, Fireman, I'm sorry, Advanced Fire Magic, and Robert Walsh. Uh, and I appreciate each and every one of you. There's always extra stuff on the Patreon and uh, some end of the year stuff coming up just for patrons. Thank you for supporting the show. And thank everyone out there for listening. We're coming up on 10 years. So uh, that's kind of cool. Never thought it would get this far. And hopefully a lot further to go. Now, I'm going to take you out with a Christmas song. Possibly my favorite Christmas song. Although, I really do like the H.P. Lovecraft Historical Society Christmas albums. Those are, those are fun. Uh, but this is from a good friend of mine, 
who is a band. It's just him. It's called Worm Quartet. And uh, he wrote a song a few years ago called The Worm Quartet Christmas. And it's weird. And I love it. So I'm going to leave you with this. Since some of you are going to be hearing this right around Christmas. And uh, yeah, so this is for you. A Worm Quartet Christmas. www.wormquartet.com if you want to find out more from him. And I will see you next time. Okay, kids, settle down. It's story time. I said settle down! That's better. Twas the night before Pope's Day, and all through the goat, the croutons were twirling like tits on a boat. The scarves of young bellhops were basted in phlegm in the hopes that Tom Brokaw would grow on a stem. The milkman was throbbing and glaring at clamps, while erstwhile gophers molested his lamps. And I and my carrot that made me lick spheres were spanking a nun underwater at Sears. When out in the beef hole, a Frenchman was squirted and clanged with such force that my nipples inverted. With ponies and catheters chained to my nose, I neutered a biscuit and swallowed my clothes. The clams of my waitress demanded more towels as poodle-clad jockeys read porn scripts to owls. And there, on the perfectly boneless horizon, a vomiting duck made me switch to Verizon. The voice of my thermostat cut through the night like a fat Presbyterian licking a kite. It promised me hampers of mayonnaise and sorrow, and belched like a barnacle baptized by Charo. On kiwis, on forklifts, on poultry and nipples, on youpers, on poopers, on commies and cripples, to the nostril of glee, to the concubine planet, now Marmaduke, 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 damn it! As elk-flavored media gargled in pain like a murderous thermos of pork in the rain. And the constable pudding that lived in my basement burst forth manifestos on bovine replacement. And then, like the screech of a bucket of toast, when a rectal kaleidoscope comes in the post, a warm feathered hat made of anger and meat threw a cat through my face and glued fame to my feet. The porcelain lullabies bled through the cheese as fiberglass embryos marched by in threes. Gelatinous oven mitts nibbled my back like toenails and mayonnaise mixed in a sack. Bouquets of gay trapezoids buttered a cop, while Spaniards and circuitry bred in a mop. And the thunderous anthem of blackheads in June destroyed mice with a Q-tip that pooped in your spoon. As pompadour polishers piddled a prayer and sodomy nuggets sewed poems to a bear, electric aristocrats rendered in fleece all the vestibule wrestling pogo police. With a cuddly anvil held tight to my butt, I deflated a taco and called it a slut. The parmesan poodle clock puckered in pain, like a puddle-clad henwipe ingesting a train. Testicular tomahawks burned through the beans as the omelet capacitors strangled their spleens because spaying a turnip may tickle a tank, but the sex you can bake is the milk you can spank. A barnacle cocktail ate birds in a maze as the diaper repairman prescribed Dijonese, but I heard him exclaim as he gargled his arm, I farm where I romp, and I romp where I farm! Merry Christmas. You have been listening to Where Did the Road Go? This show is made possible in part from our Patreons, and we thank you and everyone listening for helping us continue this exploration of the strange. You can always find everything Where Did the Road Go related at www.wheredidtheroadgo.com. And thank you so much for your support.